You are listening to Shining Star Community Church, English Ministries Sunday Message. Please visit us at www.shiningstar.life. There are warning signs everywhere. Turn to your neighbor and say, there are warning signs. Right? There are warning signs. There are warning labels on medicine, uh, bottles. There are on toys, right? You'll see on road work, roads, uh, they say work ahead or construction site or whatever you want to call it. There's signs everywhere. In D.C., it's, I, I hate parking in D.C., right? I, I think everyone agrees. Like they say, you can't park here between 1.32 and 2.45 p.m., um, or stuff like that, or every other week. This is so confusing. Uh, but there was a sign I saw uh, online. It says, warning, this sign is only a distraction. <laughs> and this is, a, this is the truth. I, I, many years ago, I was passing by uh, a farm, or I think it was a farm, but they had like a little kind of gate in front of it, and the sign said this, no trespassing, violators will be shot, survivors will be shot again. <laughs> I'm hoping it was a joke. I'm hoping it was a joke. Uh, but yeah, there are, in life there are warning signs everywhere. It's no different in Scripture because spirit, Scripture contains cautions and beware and watch what you're doing type of warnings everywhere. And I think it will be important for us to listen to what the Bible is saying. Uh, have you guys, when you're little, uh, or even right now, but when I was little, I was, whenever I was feuding with my little brother, like in the car, we'd always make imaginary boundaries, right? Like you say, you know, for me, my young brother's name is Danny. I said, Danny, uh, don't you dare put your little chubby finger next to me. If you do, I'll hit you, right? And so I'll do this little line here. <laughs> but sometimes we had to share that, the, uh, the center kind of armrest. So I'd even create a little line. But I said, because I'm bigger, I get three quarters of it, you know? And so we'll do that. We'll create these boundaries. And even as adults, uh, whenever other people overstep their boundaries and get in our personal space, we get upset. Right? This is my safe zone. This is my area. Don't get up in my grill. This is my personal space. Well, God, he's also set boundaries when he says no. And when he says no about certain things, he means it. He means it. Turn to your neighbor and say, don't overstep God's boundaries. Okay, so this is like a really fascinating passage. I'm sure a lot of people have heard of it before, and you guys are pretty interested in it now. So the issue is this. Who are the sons of God? Mentioned verses 2 and 4. Okay, so the population was growing. Then in verse 2, it says that the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. Okay, so what now? The sons of God saw the daughters of man attractive. So who married who? Like, that's the question right now that we're going to answer. So there are a couple possibilities, both of which I think have strong support. So let me quickly explain each one. Do you guys want to hear it? Say amen. amen. Okay, so here's the first one, okay? The sons of God are angelic beings who entered into a sexual relationship with women. Everyone say, come again. The sons of God are angelic beings who entered into a sexual relationship with women. Look, I know, <clears throat> I know that you know that I like Lord of the Rings. And no, I'm not getting the trilogy and the Bible mixed together, Okay. Kenny and I, who are both planning on watching a Hobbits and Lord of the Rings 18-hour-long marathon, we're not crazy, okay? Now, so this is right here, what I just told you, this whole angelic thing, this is the ancient view. This is how they interpreted it 
long ago. This is the view. This is really the oldest view of this text. It was found in the Septuagint, okay, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament because it came to a point where everyone was speaking Greek, and so they translate the Hebrew words, the Hebrew Bible, into Greek. So that's what the Septuagint is. And so in the Septuagint, which is not the Bible, but we do get some from the Bible, there's this book called First Enoch, or the Book of Enoch. And, let me, and hear me out when I read this, okay? It says in that Book of Enoch, A time had come to pass when the children of men had multiplied, that in those days were born unto them beautiful and comely daughters. And the angels, children of heaven, saw and lusted after them, and said to one another, Come, let us choose wives from among the children of men, and beget us children. They took unto themselves wives, and each chose for himself one. And they began to go in unto them, and to defile themselves with them. And they taught them charms, enchantments, and they became pregnant, and they bare uh, <clears throat> great giants. And there arose much godlessness, and, there, and they committed fornication, and they were led astray, and became corrupt in all their ways. And then it goes on to say how God judged those fallen angels, binding them in prison into the uttermost depth of the earth. So <clears throat> what I just read to you, it wasn't scripture, okay? It was from the first book of, it was from the book of Enoch. It is fallible, it is uninspired, it is uninerrant. It's human writing that undoubtedly had a lot of mistakes in it and around it, but there's a reason why it could even have some points of truth and credibility. Because there are only three other places where this exact Hebrew phrase, sons of God, are used in the Old Testament. And they're all found in the book of Job. And guess what? Each time it was mentioned, each time it was spoken, it was referring to angelic beings. Everyone say, wow. But not only that, 2 Peter and the book of Jude, two books of the Bible which we know are legit, right? They're legit. They actually seem to endorse this view. In fact, in the book of Jude, Jude mentioned a phrase, ungodly acts in ungodly ways, and it says it four times. Why? Because he was quoting from the book of Enoch. So, fallen angels or demons taking on human flesh and breeding with human women. It sounds like a page out of some fantasy novel. Sounds deeply unnatural, but we can't say for sure that it is completely wrong. Everyone say, that's interesting. Okay, so now, <clears throat> how in the world can we find any type of application to that? <laughs> right? How can we apply it to ourselves? Well, have you ever recently heard of a daughter of man and a demonic spirit crossing the line getting entangled with each other, which, which resulted in demonic, cultish, shady results? Anyone? Bueller? The president of South Korea? Yeah? But here's the thing. It's not just her. We as a nation, we're obsessed with the occult. We're obsessed with this new spirituality. You see, it doesn't matter if it's called the cult of goodness and peace. If it's not founded upon the blood of Jesus Christ, it's demonic. If it's not founded upon the blood of Jesus Christ, it will only lead you straight into darkness. So, people, let's quit your horoscopes, okay? Quit your Chinese menu thing. If you're a rat, go ahead and marry a horse, even if the almighty menu says otherwise, okay? Look. God forbids us to overstep these boundaries. He says, stop. Be careful what kinds of spirituality you expose yourself to. You know, actually, I had a youth kid who was having a lot of nightmares and a lot of kind of dealings with what he felt were demonic, demonic kind of oppression and influences. And I said, you know, tell me about yourself. What, what's going on? And one thing that he kept on saying was this. He said, I'm obsessed with, like, movies like The Ring, like Grudge. You know those kind of really creepy Asian movies? The Asian? I don't know. 
but they're creepy. They're, they're kind of demonic. They have the spirituality to it. And, and so these things will influence you, right? These things are, I think, also deeply spiritual too. It affects us. And so these things, that we have to, these things are things that we have to avoid. Okay, so that was one line of interpretation, okay? The, that the uh, sons of God were the angelic beings, okay, who had sex with human, uh, with the daughters of humans. <clears throat> Excuse me. So the second one is this, that the sons of God are the descendants, hear me out, the sons of God are the descendants of the godly line. I didn't say ungodly. Are the descendants of the godly line of Seth. Okay? Everyone say, that's a little bit better. Now, hear me out. You guys are probably confused because you're thinking sons of God are bad, but now you're saying that they're godly? They're along the godly line? That doesn't make sense. Now, I'll tell you why this view makes a little bit more sense, and this is the view I take, because it's actually much more consistent theologically with the rest of Scripture. It's consistent. There aren't any type of contradictions to it. The primary role of biblical interpretation is threefold, context, 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 right? So chapters 4 and 5, by the way, you guys are thinking, Pastor David, did you, why did you forget the rest of chapter 4 and chapter 5? It's because I think a lot of it overlaps. So if you want to read it, and I encourage you to read it, please do. Okay, but I'm here in chapter 6. Anyways, in chapters 4 and 5, Genesis points out two lines of descent. We have the descendants of the ungodly who? Cain, very good. Who in spite of the gifts that God has given, the, the, the grace that God had given, the chance after chance of the council, his line only got worse and worse and worse. They became the ungodly. Then we have the descendants of Seth, who is the third son, Okay, of Adam and Eve, and who were the ones who called upon the name of the Lord. And among them was a person named Enoch. Have you heard of him? And he walked with the Lord. So this line of Seth, descendants, they were godly. So here's how the ungodly line of Cain and the godly line of Seth connect with this chapter. So here in chapter 6, people were increasing on the earth, and then something bad happened. The sons of God, right, the ones who called upon the name of the Lord, God's people, the line of Seth, they began to desire the daughters of men, the descendants of the ungodly Cain. The godly line, the line of Seth, they began to desire after the ungodly descendants of Cain. Okay, so are you beginning to see how the previous chapters are fitting within this chapter's context? There was once a separation, okay? A separation. God had been keeping the two lines separate. One was godly. One was for him. One was looking upon and calling upon the Lord, and the other one was not. But then the godly began to lustfully look upon the ungodly. And what happened? The godly line began to get corrupt. There was a clear line of demarcation. Godliness, God says. And there was ungodliness, the world. One calling upon the name of the Lord and the other one who did not. But what happened was that they overstepped God's appointed boundary. God said, don't, don't do this. Don't cross over. Don't mix. Don't integrate with that. Don't let them influence you. But it happened. And so the holy people became unholy people of the world. Now, you're probably thinking, Pastor, I know what the next passage is. It's about the flood. So are you telling me that just because the godly and ungodly intermarry, 
That's reason enough for God to bring down the judgment of the flood upon them. Now hear me out. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, God warns his people as they're about to enter Canaan, the promised land. He tells people to drive the Canaanites out, and he says, do not intermarry with them. Now, you think promised land is good stuff, good people, flowing with milk and honey. Canaanites were not good people. They're horrible people. Okay? They did all sorts of sinful things. God says they're pagans. Child sacrifices, temple prostitution, you name it. They did it. He says, do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Why? Because he says, they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods and the Lord's anger will burn against you and destroy you. What? Why such judgment? Because he says this, for you are a people who are holy to the Lord your God and the Lord your God has chosen you out of all the people on the face of the earth to be his people, to be his treasured possession. Same thing says in Ezra chapter 9. He says, don't give your daughters in marriage to pagan nations. Then in Nehemiah chapter 13, you are not to give your daughters in marriage to their son or their daughters for your sons. And this is in reference to the surrounding nations of Ammon and also Ashdod and Moab, who are all pagan nations. Then in Malachi chapter 2, Judah has broken faith because they deliberately desecrate the sanctuary of the Lord by marrying the daughters of foreign gods. And in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 6, it says, Do not yoke yourself with unbelievers, for what does righteousness and wickedness have in common? What fellowship can light have with darkness? Look, it's pretty clear what God is trying to say right here. You might think, yes, yes, Pastor, I get it. I'll marry a Christian. But it's more than that, you see. It's not just marriage with the unbeliever that God hates. It's marriage with the world that God hates. It's marriage with the world that God hates. Holiness is what he wants. Turn to your neighbor and say, holiness. Holiness means separation. Separation means our loyalty, our love, our faithfulness, and affections, our everything is for God alone and the things of God. We can never, we, sh- we can't overstep our boundaries as Christians. But let me talk about something here, people. In this day and age, it's common to date and get serious and get engaged and even marry someone without single thought or concern as to whether or not he or she is a believer. We're more concerned about his personality or her looks or their family background or their careers or their financial status or their educational background than if they have a relationship with the God of the universe. Isn't that true? In my nearly 10 years of ministry, I believe I've heard every possible justification for why they are with that unbeliever. And by the way, for those of you who are not a believer, I'm not trash-talking you. But what I'm saying is that there is a difference between believers and unbelievers that is so deep So deep that if left alone, the difference often leads to spiritual death, divorce, generational pain as your children end up being on the receiving end of it, and much more. So it's not just you're bad and we're not. No, we're both bad. But the difference lies in our faith that gives us our identity, which ultimately determines how we speak, how we think, how we act, how we spend our money, how we spend our time, how we view life and everything else. It makes us who we are. Listen, here's the distinction between the believer and the unbeliever. The believer wants more of God. The unbeliever wants more of themselves. The believer wants more of God. So here's how you know if you're spiritually maturing. Do you want more of God each day? More of God. But to the unbeliever, their centeredness is on themselves, right? Because they don't believe in God. So who else is the most important thing in their lives? It's themselves. So they tell you, why do you always go to church? 
They don't get it. They'll, they'll tell you, why do you read the Bible? Why do you always have to pray? Why do you always have to meet with these church people? Why do you always have to bring God into the conversation? Why do you always have to talk about this thing called the gospel? Because they don't understand. They just don't understand. They don't understand that for the believer, it's all about God or nothing. So I've heard many reasons why she should still be with him or why he should still be with her. One lady, I remember a few years ago, a few years ago, I believe, she, uh, she said this. She said, I believe God brought me into his life to share the gospel with him. And she said that. And I said, good, share the gospel then. She was dating him, and she, was, she just entered into cohabitation. So she just moved into, I believe, his house, or she, he moved into her house. Regardless, that's, what, that's where they were at. And I said, you shouldn't do that. You should not yoke yourself with an unbeliever. And she said, but I want him to know how much, that, how much God loves him, how much I love him. And I told her, point blank, I said, sister, who do you love more, God or him? And she said, God, of course. And so I said, then do what God says. Trust that there's a reason why he doesn't want you to marry an unbeliever. But not only that, and brothers and sisters, I say this to you also. Evangelism, if you want to share the gospel with someone, it does not require intimacy with that person. It doesn't require intimacy. You don't have to be their girlfriend or their boyfriend to share the gospel. You can share the gospel without being intimate with them. But more than that, God loves them more than <coughs> you could ever love them. you believe that? Therefore, if that person is to be saved, it's not dependent on your commitment to them to share the gospel. It is solely dependent on God's commitment to them to ensure that the gospel is heard, whether by you or someone else. You know, God, he calls us to have a missional life, but he does not call us to have missional dating. Can I hear an amen to that? Yeah. Marriage, aside from your decision to follow Christ, will be the most important decision in your life. In marriage, when two people who, are two, who have two separate worldviews, two separate values, separate everything come together, do you know how difficult it is to coexist? So difficult. What if she likes cats and you like dogs? Right? What if she likes this and you like that? What if she is like this and you are like that? It's difficult bringing two people to in together. And what happens what results is that there will inevitably be compromise, right? And so your faith will be no exception. One of you will give in, and let me tell you something. It's a lot easier to pull someone down than it is to pull someone up, okay? And you can think, he'll change, she'll change, I'll pull them up, I'll bring them to the Lord, come on. It's a lot easier to pull them down than it is to pull them up. Look, some of you guys still have these type of decisions in front of you. We can say, but it's for love. No. You know, as a Christian, it's not. It's for faithful obedience. That's what we're about. To the one who loves you so much that his son died for you. So God, he absolutely forbids you to enter into a relationship with an unbeliever. If you're not willing to settle in the other areas of your life, I mean, I've heard so many girls say, I will not marry a guy who's less than six feet tall. I will not marry a guy who doesn't have a college degree or who doesn't do this and have, you know, they have all these things. If you won't settle with someone who, who can't do this or doesn't have that, then, then why do we settle with someone who may or may not be a believer? 
someone who maybe attends church on the special holidays. I want you guys to know, even casual Christianity should alarm you. If it would hurt me to marry a Dallas Cowboys fan, Ron, they're doing so well. Pains me. How much more difficult would it be to marry someone who worships a different God? Hard. So heed the warning signs, people, because if you're not careful, it'll lead to one thing. This is my second point, destruction. The wicked will be destroyed. Now, um, we read Ada, my daughter, uh, Bible stories, and uh, they're usually taken from these little colorful books. They're lovely books. They're ones that you can kind of pull the tabs and the, those pieces moving. There's even like these textured pages where you can feel and you can touch like the felt animals and stuff like that. And, and it's really cool. And like all these, all these little Bible stories for kids, at least, it reads kind of like the mother goose type of tale, right? Very kind of, you know, stuff like that. So for instance, when reading about Noah, it goes like this. <clears throat> God told Noah to build a big boat because God was angry. And so the, to the people, he went, grrr, right? And so God told Noah to bring in animals, and then we start counting one giraffe, two giraffe, one elephant, two, two elephants, right? And by the end of the page, we're saying, yay, <laughs> for animals. And then we say, wow, Ada, is that a big bow? She's like, yes, big bow. I'm like, yeah, it's a big bow, right? And so it's all very peppy. It's all very just like, wow, that's, that's fun, it's colorful, it's bright. You see the beautiful little rainbow and everything like that. But was that the reality? The people were so wicked. They were doing whatever they wanted. They pillaged, they raped, they murdered, they worshiped false gods, they sacrificed their children, they legalized abortion, they did drugs, promiscuity was widely accepted. There was hatred, bitterness, malice against one another. It was everywhere. They did everything that was detestable, and God's wrath was against them. You don't really read that in the children's book, do you? God was raging against their wickedness. It's not God wasn't pleased. It's not like God goes, grr. He was incensed. He was furious at what was going on. So here in this passage, we read of two things about God. He saw and he said. He saw the wickedness and it filled him with a lot of pain. This is the opposite of what happened earlier when God saw his creation and he saw that it was Good, but now he sees what has become of it, and he was filled with grief. Look at verse 5. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart, man's heart, right, was only evil continually. So this is not, it's not just a matter of bad behavior. It's not just an external thing. It's internal. It's the inclination of evil, and that's how God sees things. We say man is a murderer because he murders. God says we murder because we're murderers. Do you see the difference? You say, that's the thing, it's internal first, and God is grieving. But not only that, sin, it also influences. Because it comes from our heart, it influences everything we do. Have you ever had a thought or a moment where you kind of surprise yourself at how wicked you were? <laughs> or how bad you were? I'll be honest. I'm an honest guy. Um, there was a time, I think many times, but there was this one particular time where it really just caught me. I saw a bicyclist, on, you already know where the story is going, right? I saw a bicyclist <laughs> on the road. Right? And um, I love bicyclists. I love Key. I love Shang, the guys who bicycle and everything. And one day I want to do this, so I'm not trying to bash on you guys, but this is just my personal experience and I'm totally depraved. Okay. So I saw this bicyclist on the road and he was totally in my way. And the thing is, there was, there was a bike lane and there was also a sidewalk. So I'm just thinking, dude, just go. Right? 
And I was, I was, and he was moving super slow too. And I was in a rush, right? We're always in a rush. And suddenly, as I'm, I'm not tailgating him because that's, you know, I don't want to kill him. So he's still in front, but it's clear that I'm behind him. And he's not doing anything. So I'm just like, you know, like, go there. I even did this, like, go, <laughs> move, right, in my car. And he didn't really do anything. So that, that moment, I just thought this. I thought, David, um, maybe, you, just, maybe you, just, you, just, you can just nudge him with your car. <laughs> but here's the reality. You can't nudge anything with a car, right? Because you either hit them or you don't. So then, right then and there, I thought to myself, Pastor David, <laughs> did you just fantasize about hitting someone with your car because you're just late and you're, you're you know, ticked off? You see, no one really thinks you are as sinful as you could be. But the truth is, there is no part of us here that's untainted by sin. Wickedness isn't only in us Monday through Saturday, and then on Sundays we're all holy and pure. No, wickedness is in us all the time because we're sinful through and through. And the reality is we can't keep track of every thought, every action, every word, or every attitude all the time. Sin is always with us. And in that respect, it grieved God. He saw what's constantly going through our minds and our hearts. It grieved him. There wasn't one ounce of goodness. There wasn't one ounce of just joy and, and, and wanting more God and, and seeking after holiness and sanctification. We, he just saw wickedness in these people, in his creation. It's called total depravity. Total depravity. Meaning this, that we're not just sinful, but guess what? Everything we think, everything we do, it's tainted with sin. We're polluted. So the heart of the wicked was filled with wickedness, and the heart of God was filled with pain. God, he saw the wickedness, and it grieved him. But God, he also spoke something, too. And in the speaking, it revealed his plan. So according to verse 3, God says that he's going to remove his spirit from man. Remember, the spirit was the spirit of God that hovered over the waters to protect the humans, human race. He says, that's going to be gone. The one thing, that, that protection is going to be gone. Some commentator said this. This act of the flood that's about to come, this judgment, he called it the uncreation. The uncreation. So in verse 7, it says, God will blot out man, right, or wipe mankind out from the face of the earth, wipe out, blot out. It means complete removal of something, and that something in this case was the humans, mankind. For everyone who's been concerned about the rising wickedness in this world, know this, wickedness will be destroyed. One day, wickedness will be destroyed. It happened back then, and it's happening now, and it'll happen fully completed in the near future. You see, wickedness, though you may see it as running rampant, it's not something that God tolerates. It's not. So he gave them 120 years to repent, 120 years of warning to repent. And folks, God has given you and me and us 2,000 years of warning to repent. God has not forgotten. God is not sweeping the dust of sin under his cosmic rug. There will be a day of reckoning. In fact, in Matthew chapter 24, we read this. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people, get this, right before the flood happened, 
People were eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage. Up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them away. That is how it will be at the coming of of the Son of Man. People scoff at this. But in 2 Peter chapter 3, it says this, Scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. As sure as the flood came, brothers and sisters, judgment upon the wicked will come too. God did it once, he'll do it again. This time completely. But here's the thing, brothers and sisters and friends. God's judgment may seem extreme, right? We're probably thinking that's a bit much, God. But so was his plan of redemption. I love you guys, but I don't know if I could give up my son for you. Like, I love you guys. I will, if you want, and you are in California, and you need me, I will, I will probably maybe drive. Maybe I'll send Jesse. I will not give my son up for you. I don't know if I can. In the midst of all that was happening, all the pain, all the chaos, all the suffering, God, he surprises mankind with something. The extreme nature of his judgment, but the extreme nature of his salvation, he surprises them with grace. So here in verse 8, we read for the first time in the Bible the most amazing and most glorious word to have ever hit our ears. It says, but Noah found favor, grace, in the eyes of the Lord. Notice it didn't say, but Noah was doing well, and he treated people well, and he's a little bit better than others, and therefore he earned or earned that favor of grace. No, it says he found favor. Like he, he found it. The thing about grace is this. You and I, we're just recipients of it. We just receive it. Because we will be like those people living and working, marrying, drinking, eating, just doing life. We too deserve judgment, and yet here Noah received favor and escaped divine judgment. Remember when that passage, when the passage said that the wickedness of man was great? It meant every man was wicked. That included Noah. Do you know that? Include Noah. Noah was depraved too. He was corrupt too, and yet he was the one who received the grace of God. Maybe you think right now for some reason that you are you're unforgivable. Your sins are too great. You made too many sins, too many blunders. You are unlovable, and you think, why in the world would God love me? Brothers and sisters, if you got air in your lungs and you have time right here and right now to repent, to confess, and ask for forgiveness, then God's grace is upon you. We have today to repent, and tomorrow, when it says this, really is no guarantee. So tomorrow could be the flood. But know this, the reality is that God, he doesn't just love, but he is love. And he loves us despite our shortcomings and sins. However, he will not force anything upon us. We must respond to his grace and approach him with deep humility and ask for the forgiveness of our sins. His grace is available to you today. The thing is, we can't ever really brag about our love for God, right? But we're constantly, because we're constantly failing him. But we can certainly brag about his love for us because his love never fails. Grace doesn't mean that judgment will not come. It's going to come. Grace means 
that as certain as the coming judgment is, that there is a safe place, a place of refuge, an ark of salvation, if you will. But this refuge is found in Jesus. Remember how God was angry and grieved over the wickedness of man and how God had wrath against it? Well, it was on that cross that Jesus endured the wrath of God for us. You and I do not have to go through the flood. We do not have to go through the judgment. We don't have to be the recipients of God's righteous wrath because his son received it for us. It was on that cross that Jesus endured the wrath of God for us, and so for those who follow after Jesus will not have to face that judgment day of wrath. You know, God, and I end with this, he's laid out the warnings all around us, people. Warnings everywhere. They're blaring. Red flags everywhere. And here in this passage, we see clearly what sin looks like. And I think it's evident that none of us here are sinless. We see that God grieves because of it. And we see that God will not let, let it escape because he's going to judge it. But in all that, God reminds us today of his grace found in Jesus who will forgive us. And in the midst of all the storm and the coming storm, he will keep you safe. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we will talk about more um, on this passage or this chapter next week, but truly we thank you that, that this is such a bright and hopeful example that, that salvation is, is one that comes directly from you and it has nothing to do with us. Because if it had anything to do with us, Lord, I don't think I'd make it. And the reason why I don't think I'd make it is because as good as I think I am, I know how perfect you are. And there is no comparison. And so with my tainted life, with the, my blemished heart, Father, how could I possibly approach your throne of perfection and holiness? Which is why, God, in your mercy and in your grace, you said, I will save you. You will be the recipient of my grace. You can't earn it. You certainly don't deserve it. But I will be the one to pull you out of that pit of despair. I will rescue you from the deluge. I will rescue you from the flood. Come into my ark. And friends, that's Jesus. I want to encourage you guys to take a moment now as the Lord speaks to you as he has spoken to me this past week that you reflect upon his mercy and his grace and you would pray with a heart of thanksgiving. But you would also pray in repentance too, realizing that sin is pervasive. It influences every aspect of our lives. But by God's mercy, he's given us this air and this time and this opportunity to repent and say, God, take it from me. Make me whole again. Create in me a clean heart. Let's get right with God. Get right with them. So take a moment and pray, and we'll go into our last song.